here. Um, and gender has been one of my long-standing interests, so I've dipped in and out of gender research, I think, over the past 25 years. Um, so it was quite nice to be able to just to reflect back on some of the changes or not that there has been. So I think um, if we were to think just a little bit about context, I think certainly the Good Friday Belfast Agreement did provide us at the time, at least with some optimism about uh, the prospect of greater gender equality in Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland Women's Coalition had ensured inclusion in the agreement of uh, a list of rights encompassing a right to equal opportunity and including, of course, as we know, the right of women to full and equal participation. That's a quote from the agreement. There was also seemed to be potential for transforming gender relations in new equality legislation and in particular section 75 of the Northern Ireland Act and at the time it was lauded as and was uh, the most progressive and far-reaching far equality duty um, on the islands. So really today I'm just going to reflect on the state of gender equality in Northern Ireland over those 25 years and where we're, we're at now through examining some key social and public policy priorities, not them all, you'll be glad to hear. But I'm also interested in how the concept of equality is understood. And I think here, more than in any other place, equality is a contested concept. And I think that has been in some ways damaging when it comes to progress on gender equality. So if we just step back now to the time of the agreement and concerns about fairness and justice were, were a recurring theme in the agreement and that was due in large part to the work of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. So those women brought a perspective to the process which wasn't just concerned with gender but with the broader equality and human rights agenda. And in February 1996, so a couple of years before the agreement, the British and Irish governments had issued a joint communique announcing the convening of all party talks. And at that, in that paper, they invited advice as to how participants for those talks could be selected. Now, you might not believe this, but at the time, there wasn't much thought given, I don't think, to those convening talks about how uh, women should be represented or even the extent to which they should be represented. But one of Northern Ireland's leading NGOs, the Northern Ireland Women's European Platform, responded to that paper uh, on how the proposed talks could be gender-proofed. And um, uh, Monica McWilliams and Kate Fearon, and some of their work on the Women's Coalition, discuss how the themes laid out in that Women's European Platform document were constantly raised by the Women's Coalition during the talks um, and actually um, created an impetus and a lot of the foundation for the Women's Coalition to be established and for their focus. And the basis of the actions taken by the Women's European Platform at that time stemmed from the strong tradition of women's community activism during the conflict. So, summarising a lot of what happened here, but when 110 people were elected to take part in the all-party talks, 15 of those were women. And that absolutely would not have happened 
without the Northern Ireland Women's European Platform taking that action. Now, Michelle Rice, who was going to be here, talks in some of her work about how the participation of women in the initial phases of the peace process here was really distinct from the majority of international peace processes and that that was really instrumental to the inclusion of potentially far-reaching equality and human rights um, commitments that were set out in the agreement. So if we um, just think a little bit then about the agreement itself, so a key thing listed within the list of rights in the agreement was a clause affirming that right of women to full and equal participation. But the agreement, as I've said, also contained provisions for a more regulatory approach to equality through the introduction of a new statutory obligation on public authorities to carry out all of their functions with due regard to the need to promote equality of opportunity in relation to nine groups. Uh, and that in itself was not new, not all of it at least. So that duty had been preceded by uh, the, the, the then innovative policy appraisal and fair treatment guidelines which had been introduced in Northern Ireland in the early 1990s. And those guidelines required all new public policies and public services to be assessed for their impact on, also on nine social categories. But they didn't place a requirement for um, the policy to be changed in the way that Section 75, in theory, did. So, as I mentioned earlier, Section 75 has frequently been described as the most extensive positive duty imposed in the UK and that was because of the potential for affirmative action, positive discrimination if you like, that came with that legislation. Now of course our equality legislation has been surpassed in its reach by equality legislation in Britain. And even in those early days there was perhaps some indication of the challenge to come. So um, when the First, when the draft legislation was imposed about how all of this would work, in that draft legislation there was initially no obligation on public authorities to establish schemes to promote equality of opportunity. There was no reference to impact assessments and that situation was only remedied by very intensive lobbying by NGO groups and actually by cross party um, lobbying from across the United Kingdom. So where did women figure in 1998? Um, and this was interesting for me because we started the first Northern Ireland Life and Time survey in 1998 as well. Um, and I'm still uh, involved with, with ARC, which did that at the time. But of course, a, a very common claim for scholars then was that Northern Ireland was a very conservative place relative to other regions of the UK in terms of family relationships, attitudes to gender roles and so on, and that that impacted on women's participation in public life and their participation in the, in the paid labour market. So our first survey conducted just as Northern Ireland was on the brink of devolution did indeed indicate that gender stereotypes were extraordinarily enduring in Northern Ireland. We did have some sense of what, was in play, uh, what attitudes were even before that through the former Northern Ireland Social Attitudes Survey. 
But in 1998, we could see that there were signs that attitudes were on the move, and actually, particularly, that men's attitudes were, were on the move. So men were demonstrating more positive attitudes towards uh, working mothers than they had been in 1994. Um, we asked some of the same questions and more questions in 2002. And what we found then was some further liberalisation of attitudes. So, for example, as you see on the slide there, well over 60% of women and almost 60% of men said that having a job was the best way for a woman to be an independent person. And 64% of respondents overall thought that men ought to take more responsibility for childcare. But as you see here, it was a mixed picture. What you see in the slide here is in both 1998 and 2002, a sizable minority of people saying that what women really want is a home and children. And that, in fact, slightly more than 1998 with regard to that question. And almost 50% of men saying that a woman should stay at home until a child was school age, so half of respondents. And over a third saying that a preschool child was likely to suffer if his or her mother worked. And you can see the figures are very similar for, for men and women on, in those years. But with regard to that latter question, we see some, some more movement with regards to men's attitudes that we do to women's attitudes. Now, one of the reasons I chose to focus on these questions was, we'll come to childcare later, but I did begin to wonder if still that it is some of these attitudes, or a, at least a perception that we should or ought to have these attitudes, that has held back for so many years the development of a childcare strategy in Northern Ireland, that there is still a bit of debate in our conscience or in our society or amongst our politicians about whose responsibility it actually is to look after children. And then the employment statistics are, are quite interesting. So in 1999, they, they do show women's fairly marginal position in the, in the paid labour market. So for the employment rate for women of working age at uh, over 61% compared to a male employment rate of 72%. But it's more than that. It's where women were very heavily concentrated in part-time jobs. So 50% of all female jobs at the time were part-time. And even by 2005, um, the daily statistics were shown as that women's employment rate had only risen to 63.7%. Women's employment patterns, although they were changing from the 1980s, were still reflecting women in very traditional roles. So in a smaller number of usually lower paid occupations, so occupational segregation was really stark. Um, so of all women employed in 1999, over 88% were in service uh, industries. That figure increased to 1991% by 2005, compared to 63% of males. Now, undoubtedly, that's to do with changes in the broader labour market and the move to more uh, service sector work, more part-time work, and so on. So... In terms of political representation, which is up there, at every level we were really poor. So you can see it there for yourself. Out of 18 members of uh, Parliament elected to Westminster, none were women. Of three representatives returned to the European Parliament, none were women. 14% of councillors were women. 
and in the first elections to the Assembly here, 13% of those elected were women. So that compares to 37% of those elected to the Scottish Parliament and 40% to the Welsh Assembly. So, have we progressed or have we just procrastinated with regard to women's equality? I'm not going to come to that yet because that will be a distraction for you. Um, so what have we established? We've established that the peace process and the, the agreement had definitely been informed by women's perspectives. But as we know, uh, Stormont has had an uneasy history. We've had a lot of stop-start devolution compared to the other jurisdictions in the UK. And the commitment set out in the 19, 1998 agreement to women's full participation was not replicated in subsequent agreements. Niall Gilmartin, in his work, argues that this is reflective of an indifference to gender equality. So in the Stormont House Agreement, the only mention of women in its 14 pages is in re relation to outstanding commitments, where there's a nod towards a Bill of Rights and other equality issues, including the phrase, the advancement of women in public life. Um, there's a similar lack of visibility in the Fresh Start Agreement and the New Decade New Approach Agreement, which restored the executive in 2020, makes no specific mention of gender other than a reference to the gender, the gender strategy, not even the gender equality strategy, just the gender uh, strategy. And that was named as one of a number of new social inclusion strategies which were to be developed with the resumption of the institutions. Now, um, so before then, in the years between um, the, the uh, devolution starting and the new decade, new approach, um, we, at various stages, we saw that women's full and equal participation was not being considered. I won't go into all of those examples. There are too many, sadly. But, for example, in 2010, a new community sharing and integration strategy published in which the contribution of women during the years of the conflict and in the peace process was largely ignored, and the strategy was heavily criticised for that. As late as 2016, when the Commission on Flags, Identity, Culture and Tradition was set up, um, the appointees to that commission were 14 men and one woman. Now, that seems all the more surprising in light of all of the international research and literature about how important it is to involve women in post-conflict societies in the um, institutions of democracy. And certainly by this stage, by 2016, NGOs in Northern Ireland were very, very engaged with UN Resolution 1325, which sets out very clearly the justification for and the principles of that, um, of that engagement. If we look back to the first programme for government, there were really noticeable absences in that uh, in that document. So no mention of problems of domestic abuse, no mention of developing childcare policy or family-friendly policies. Most political parties at that time were making known their opposition to reform of abortion law. And when abortion was debated in the Assembly in 2000 and again in 2007, there was really overwhelming opposition to reform. 
Uh, and despite the fact that at that time it was a reserved responsibility, so Stormont couldn't have legislated for abortion reform anyway. So, not to be too depressing, there has undoubtedly been progress in a number of areas in educational opportunities where girls and young women are, are performing really well at every level, progress in paid employment, and we'll, we'll see shortly with, uh, with regard to pay as well, um, and definitely um, Im improvements in terms of political participation and participation in public life. Um, and I think we've been able to trace through the Life and Time survey changing social attitudes as well to the role of women. But um, I was one of the members of the expert review team asked to provide an evidence review for the gender equality strategy. And we um, found evidence of very persistent and deeply embedded gender equalities in Northern Ireland and a failure of social policy more generally to address the substantive structural inequalities um, which would actually help to address many of those issues. So it is useful to think about where we are now with, with some of the indicators. There's been some improvement in terms of, if we just look purely at the employment rate, so um, the employment rate for women, the latest figures, 68.5, although actually there's probably maybe nearly June figures now, they come out so, so quickly, compared to a rate of 75.6 for men. The proportion of women working full-time in the, uh, in the 10 years up to 2021 increased, but only by 2.1 percentage points. And these nuances are, are interesting because we definitely see more women in the employment overall, but quite a bit of that then is in part-time work. And then that in turn probably relates um, to the lack of childcare and the inadequacies in some of the social care provision. For the past 30 years, we've had the unenviable position as the area in the UK with the highest rates of economic inactivity. And the Northern Ireland rate now stands at 26.1 compared to a UK rate of 21. And women's economic inactivity rates have been consistently higher than those for men by some margin. So if we look at the 16 to 64 group, um, 30.5. 4% of that group are women and 21.8% are men. So the figures speak for themselves, but actually there is a, a, maybe potentially a bigger problem with how we understand and how statisticians understand that term economic inactivity. And it seems increasingly inappropriate because of the number of people, mainly women, who are not in the paid labour market because they are providing unpaid care. So either care for children and for families or for care of adults who require social care. Now, arguably, there's therefore quite a significant proportion of women who could enter the labour market. But I don't even think that's the most important point. I think the most important point is that what this term indicates is that unpaid care work is not valued, that it is not worth counting as economic inactivity. And the Office for National Statistics estimates show us that unpaid care is equivalent to 56% of GDP. So I think there is a broader question for us about the extent to which we as a society value 
care, and, and I'll come back to that towards the end when we uh, talk about apprenticeships and so on. There has been something of a good news story, as I've said, with regard to the gender pay gap. So Northern Ireland is the only area of the UK where women working full-time earn more per hour on average than, than men do. But if we look at all employees, regardless of working pattern, then women earn just over 8% less than men. And again, you know, some of, the, some of the differences in pay are long-standing, and particularly we have quite a big difference between women in the, who work in the public sector and women who work in the private sector. Um, so it, it is quite a big differential. So in 2022, women earned 78 pence per hour less than men in the public sector, but in the private sector, this was two pounds and five pence. The biggest gap is for women, is, is in the 50 to 59 age group, where women earn two pounds 50 an hour less than men, and that's a 16% pay gap. And women also earn less than men in eight out of nine occupation groups. So, is there evidence that we might see some progress on those employment issues and the occupational segregation in the short term? Sadly, no. Um, and we know this by, well, we know some of it by looking at apprenticeship statistics and apprenticeship policies. And uh, just in the past couple of years, we've been working on a gender budgeting project. And apprenticeships is one of the areas we selected for uh, analysis. Apprenticeships are important because you know, the research evidence tells us that they're a tool for social mobility. So good apprenticeships offer better employment prospects, workforce upskilling, higher earnings over the lifetime, and greater occupational mobility. However, our analysis of the apprenticeship data for Northern Ireland unfortunately indicates that apprenticeship policy here establishes career paths which may actually serve to consolidate and reinforce gendered inequalities. So what the slide here shows is that the majority of participants on apprenticeship programmes since 2013, and the figures there maybe not very clear, go up to April 2020. So the majority of, of participants have been men, and, and their representation has increased pretty much year on year. And that hasn't been the same for female participants over the same period. The figures aren't there, but men have also dominated the newer, higher-level apprenticeships, where their participation is double that of women. Uh, and so, on the one hand, we could address this by saying that we need more women in existing apprenticeships. But it's a bigger problem than that, and that's not the whole story. Higher-level apprenticeships have traditionally privileged tradi uh, male sectors, traditionally male sectors, but they've been very under-responsive to well-identified skills shortages in other areas, and particularly in the social care sector. So the skills barometer for Northern Ireland, which policymakers heavily rely on to identify future uh, need and so on in the labour market, tells us that health and social care is a growth area. We also, most of us know, I think, that there's a crisis in health and social care with regard to the workforce, significant retention and recruitment crisis, which is threatening the sustainability of that sector. 
and it is also an area where investment would almost immediately benefit women who constitute the majority of that workforce. So really, whilst uh, apprenticeship policy is sold as neutral and expenditure is identified as neutral, in its operation it is highly gendered. Now, um, some grounds for optimism, few seats of optimism. The, the more recent Skills 10X strategy does acknowledge for the first time those labour market inequalities. Uh, it does acknowledge also that unpaid care, um, to quote, is a significant and growing feature of our economy, and it is a feature where women provide the majority of care. But I think that strategy is more referring to the fact that those are inhibitors to women taking part in the labour market rather than how apprenticeship policy should begin to address uh, those issues. Within the 10X strategy, there is a very positive and big focus on STEM and the continuing low participation rates among women in this area is, is concerning, as they say, because there have been initiatives over a number of years to increase the number of women in STEM. Um, so that is, has now been identified again as a, as a significant strategic priority. But what it doesn't go on to say that it, it has to be about more than getting women into STEM areas. Um, there, there really has to be an explicit recognition of the need to and the value of investing in care work. That's really important for, for the workforce stability that we need and for the reform of the adult social care sector. As I said, it would almost immediately um, advantage the high proportion of female employees in this area, but it would also help to attract more men. And this is a very gendered area of work. You know, about 90% or more of employees in this, in this sector are men, and we want to break down the gender stereotyping with regard to those jobs as well. And then what of childcare? So um, there isn't any doubt from the research that women's participation in and experience of the labour market is really strongly associated with the number of children that they have, and particularly the age of the youngest child. So having one or more children reduces a woman's likelihood of being in a permanent full-time job by nearly a third. So there is a very strong motherhood penalty and that increases very significantly once you go over three or more children, and particularly where children are under, uh, under school age. Now, um, internationally, many governments and lots of research has recognised that childcare is essential social infrastructure, just in the way that transport is, and that investment in childcare will reap long-term benefits for the economy and for society. But we are the only part of the UK in 2023 still without a childcare strategy. So a very, very long-awaited early years in childcare draft strategy can't be published for consultation currently without executive agreement. And that's understandable, I think. However, regardless of those more recent reasons for the delay, the more pertinent question is why childcare hasn't been a bigger priority over the past 25 years, and particularly in light of increasingly uh, expanded entitlements in other UK jurisdictions. 
So one reason could be money. Yes, but there is always money if something is prioritised as a policy. So we need to turn that question around to say why has childcare not been a policy priority. It could be problems agreeing things, operational things like structure, because we have a very fragmented system of childcare provision, and that does make putting a, a strategy and a system together difficult, but not impossible. Or I would pose a question about whether there, is, there are more ideological objections to a childcare strategy. So, you know, looking back to those early attitudes that I, look, that I looked at, do we still hold some of those attitudes? Do our politicians still hold some of those attitudes which maybe aren't reflected in society anymore? So is there anything of an ideological objection to state subsidising childcare provision and to facilitating working parents, but working mothers in particular? So um, let's, let's, let's look at some positive things. So women's participation in formal politics has increased, and the figures there are very different from those 1998 figures. So in the last elections to the Assembly here, 32 women were elected, up from 27 in 2017. So women are now 35.5% of those elected to the Northern Ireland Assembly, and that's higher than in the Westminster Parliament but still lagging behind the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament, where the figures are 43 and 45%, respectively. In the recent local council elections, 30% of councillors returned were women, and that's also up from the 29 figure of 26%. And in public, with regard to appointments to public bodies, there has been real progress. This was a figure which was really static for about 20 years, but now we do see it on the move. So women account for 42% of public appointments, but only 28% of the chairs of public bodies. I think with regard to this really important issue of domestic abuse and violence, there's a mixed picture. We, we have seen progress since 1998. And I was thinking, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Monica McWilliams' first study really, first big study of domestic violence in Northern Ireland was in 1995, and that painted a really dismal picture of attitudes, of health service response, police and judiciary response. And in her most recent work in 2018, she has talked about how, with regard to a number of those areas, there's really been major positive change. But abuse, uh, incidents of, of abuse figures are higher, and in all of that, I think, suggests the need for a more transformative policy agenda. And I think we have seen something of that in the recent months of the Assembly before the collapse. So we've had new coercive control legislation, which means that domestic abuse offences in Northern Ireland will no longer be limited to acts of physical violence. So coercive control is now an offence. And just before the Assembly fell in 2022, the executive did agree to bring forward a strategy to tackle the root causes of violence against women and girls, uh, all forms of violence, with a particular emphasis on behavioural and attitudinal change. And work has been, a lot of work has been ongoing, even in the period since uh, we haven't had an assembly. And of course, there has been progress on the issue of reproductive rights. 
albeit through legislation passed at Westminster rather than the Northern Ireland Assembly. So the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Act of 2019 decriminalised abortion in Northern Ireland. Really interesting this, and we saw yesterday the announcement of Westminster legislating for RSE um, education. Now, up until that abortion legislation was passed in 2019, the Westminster government had been quite resistant to the idea that it should exercise powers to legislate for these issues, repeatedly argued that it, abortion was a devolved matter, that it had been devolved under the uh, measures to also devolve responsibility for policing and justice. But in the end, the Westminster government gave way to pressure from a number of fronts. One of the most significant sources of that pressure was an inquiry report published by the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in 2018. And that uh, inquiry report found that the UK government was violating women's human rights by restricting access to abortion. It was a very strongly worded inquiry report. Now, that actual report came about because of um, the very good job that NGOs had done in Northern Ireland in engaging with the UN uh, bodies, and particularly with that CEDAW committee. And three NGOs had worked for a number of years putting together an evidence submission to the CEDAW committee to ask for an inquiry under the optional protocol measure. Now, the, the threshold for that evidence is really high, and the CEDAW committee took another maybe four or five years to consider that evidence. An inquiry under the optional protocol, particularly on these issues, is extremely rare because the UN committees generally like to work by trying to persuade countries to change rather than, than to try and force them. But in the end, the inquiry took place, and that was the findings. Um, there's also, I think everyone probably knows about a, a number of very high-level legal cases around access to abortion as well. And then in 2015, we had evidence of strong public support for reform of abortion from the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey. So that was work we had uh, done, which was funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. And what we found was that over 70% of respondents to the survey supported decriminalisation and supported reform. Now, there were some nuances, nuanced opinions around the circumstances in which abortion should be legal and around time limits and things like that. But in terms of broad support for reform, it was very high, and it was very high across all political parties. I think one of the... So we, we asked people what political party they support, and then we can cross-tabulate the results to that to other questions. And it was actually among, amongst uh, people who said they were DUP supporters that we found some of the highest support for reform. So that was statistical evidence that um, politicians who said that the Northern Ireland public were not in favour of reform were, were not actually speaking for the public. So we do now have abortion legislation. We do still have outstanding problems with regard to access to abortion services and the commissioning of those services by the Trust. We've also saw progress with regard to the social inclusion strategies, including a gender equality strategy. So uh, work on all of those strategies commenced and took place um, under co-design groups. And um, again, um, those 
draft strategies have been unable to be published because they need executive sign-off. So just getting towards the end, you'll be glad to hear what accounts for some of the limited progress overall and how can, how can we really explain that and what can we do to, to move things on a bit? Has there been a failure of mainstreaming? So Section 75 was to be a mainstreaming measure. It was to mainstream equality into every aspect of public policy. It was intended to be transformative, to change the practices of government and public authorities so that equality of opportunity was central to policy making and to implementation. Now here um, we saw very early that there were going to be uh, difficulties around implementation. So a uh, report in 2000 suggested that Section 75 was unable to address the substance of inequality, that it was an administrative, bureaucratic driven instrument uh, rather than being policy driven and that it had considerations of effectiveness had hardly figured in its elaboration. Um, other studies found it to be procedural or for there to be thin compliance. And even by the time we get to 2009, um, an examination of equality mainstreaming concluded that Section 75 was still primarily procedural with not much evidence that it produced outcomes by way of substantive results. So not a problem per se with the legislation or its intention, but definitely a problem with the implementation of it. Um, scholars working on policy analysis would argue that gender remains a blind spot for policymakers, and that in some ways Section 75 has actually contributed to that. And that's because of the misguided assumption that we should look across the nine groups equally, rather than looking for where the inequality is, where the disadvantage is, and what affirmative action could be taken to address those. So it's really, I think, a combination of factors. It's a, a lack of conceptual appreciation of what constitutes substantive equality. That just means equality in terms of the outcomes that we achieve, rather than, than the more formal procedural equality. There's perhaps been an inadequate understanding of how policy outcomes affect the lives of women. And I'm thinking back to the first, uh, I think it was the first welfare reform bill that was published 2014-2015, um, which, uh, which didn't consider a full equality impact assessment to be necessary. And if we know any, anything now, we know what an enormous differential impact welfare reform legislation has on, on women and on, on, on lone parents, for example. Um, we also suffer from a lack of gender disaggregated data and perhaps then some problems also with regard to organisational culture. But what has been really absent in Northern Ireland is the visibility of gender in our high-level policy documents. Um, and that's been shown by recent work we've done for the Gender Budgeting Project when we carried out a gender audit of the Northern Ireland Draft Programme for Government, the 2016 document. Um, so the Programme for Government is important. Um, it reflects the executive's strategic policy priorities. It's articulating the executive's vision for society and it's the overarching framework underpinning the budget. 
So how gender equality is situated and understood in a programme for government establishes the parameters for policy and establishes the, the priorities for resource allocation. So when we looked at the positioning of gender within the draft programme for government and the associated documents such as equality, impact assessments and delivery plans, we found that there was evidence of a gender-neutral approach, particularly to equality impact assessment. So just to give you an example, the screening document um, didn't engage in any meaningful way with the differences in experiences and needs of men and women across any of the screening questions. So there was a question, are there opportunities to better promote equality of opportunity between men and women? And the document states that this is not applicable, applicable since the programme for government framework has no differential impact on this section 75 group, which obviously just isn't the case. That was also evident in the uh, more recent um, consultation document on the reform of adult social care, where despite the fact that at the start of the document reference was made to the greatest number of users of adult social care being women, and certainly the greatest number of carers being women, um, it, it wasn't considered to be a consideration for equality impact assessment. So I think those kind of responses indicate that there's a, there's a fair, you know, there's a view that gender-neutral policy will deliver gender-equal outcomes, and those two things don't marry up. Um, because where there are pre-existing inequalities, then neutral policies will do nothing to address these or ameliorate them, and can actually serve to compound them. Um, so. Despite the fact that we do have rhetorical commitments to addressing existing inequalities, there's a focus on the avoidance of um, adverse impact with no consideration of how policy might be adapted to deliver um, benefits for those disadvantaged groups. So no consideration given to affirmative action. And that's been very characteristic of our process with regard to the application of Section 75. Now, in the paper that we published around that audit, we did note some very positive signs for change in the 2021 draft outcomes framework consultation. So when we compared that 2021 screening questionnaire um, with the one produced in 2016, it does seem to be based on a very different understanding of pre-existing inequality. So whereas the 2016 equality impacts were deemed not, not applicable, in the 2021 outcomes framework consultation, they're regarded as major due to the potential for improving outcomes for disadvantaged groups. Quote. So the equality impact assessment states that in aspiring to achieve the aim of well-being for all, it's important to recognise that not all citizens are starting from the same position, that inequalities exist and persist. And I think that's really very positive. We do, I think, have to be still a little bit concerned about the assumption that an outcomes-based accountability approach to policymaking um, doesn't lead us to requiring gender neutrality at the whole population level, 
and, and therefore sub subordinating the cross-cutting driver of inequality in our society to the level of performance accountability. It is gender equality. It is more than that. And if we address gender inequality, we will also be addressing inequality in the other groups as well. So I think overall, we have yet to see an approach to gender inequality which is grounded in principles of human rights and substantive equality. It's not been a policy priority for Northern Ireland and the promise of full and equal participation for women has yet to be achieved. Um, some of the feminist research done in post-conflict societies does tell us that that one of the difficulties that consociational democracies face in attempting to accommodate other forms of difference, such as gender equality, um, you know, that that's not easy, that it's continually pushed down the priority list. And I think it is important to acknowledge that what has changed in the past 25 years is that gender discrimination and inequality is increasingly challenged, is increasingly called out. And I think we do have somewhere to go with trying to address gender inequality. And I think that gender budgeting does offer real potential in this respect. There's a growing consensus globally that addressing gender inequality means transforming public service budgeting. So McCrudden um, stated in 2004 that redistribution is essentially the end product of an effective mainstreaming process. If that is the case, and we don't attach a budgetary component to the process of impact assessment, then mainstreaming is going to fail, and has failed in the way that we've been doing it. But if we adopt a more critical review of how budgetary allocations are made, then there is potential to affect the economic and social opportunities of women. And I think the work we've done on apprenticeships does illustrate that. So gender budgeting is now evident in the public policy of many, many countries. So the IMF found in 2016, so even quite a time ago now, that 80 countries had implemented it in some form, although the operationalization of it is less established in some. With, you know, there's lots of diverse approaches and there's varying levels of commitment and depth. But I think that, you know, we... We see um, that the common refrain might, might be that this is the hardest time to do gender budgeting when we've got all of these cuts and money is really short. But in fact, what we know from the international literature that this is the most important time to do gender budgeting because we can really change those outcomes. You know, we can really ensure that the most vulnerable are protected and that there is affirmative action. Um, the, the evidence overall from our research, in the first phase of the research, we interviewed lots of policymakers policy across government departments and in arm's length bodies, statutory organisations. We found very little resistance to the idea of gender budgeting. Quite a lot of people didn't know anything about it. They may have heard the term, they were interested in seeing an explanation, but very little overt resistance. Um, but what we also found from those interviews and from the subsequent work we have done is that whilst policymakers want to know how to do gender budgeting, so we, we, we keep getting asked for more and more case studies, show us what difference it would make, show us how we might do it, you know, um, 
But where there was resistance was to the idea that we might have something else apart from Section 75, another regulatory mechanism like that. And I don't think we need that. We need to do Section 75 properly. We need to do it well. The biggest stumbling <coughs> block might be actually the conceptual understanding of inequality and equality. Because if we, if we don't properly understand the roots of equality and inequality, um, then we won't do gender budgeting well either. That will also be something of a, a, a procedural mechanism just. And that is it. Thank you very much for listening so attentively.